0: Okay, hi everyone. Welcome to the, one of the first talks of the morning. Uh, I hope everyone slept well. Uh, so today we're lucky enough to have Andrew Sandberg uh, come present to us today. Um, Andrew Sandberg's research centers on estimating the capabilities and underlying science of future technologies, methods of reasoning about long-term futures. Uh, Existential and Global Catastrophic Risk, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, SETI, as well as societal and ethical issues surrounding human enhancement. Uh, Topics of particular interest include management of systemic risk, reasoning under uncertainty, enhancement of cognition, neuroethics, and public policy. He has worked on this within the EU, Project Enhance, where he he was also responsible for public outreach and online presence and the ERC Unpredict project. Besides scientific publications in neuroscience, ethics, and future studies, he's also participated in the public debate about human enhancement, existential risk, and SETI internationally. Please welcome Anders on to Sage.
1: Thank you so much for uh, that uh, opening. So as you can tell, I am one of those people who can't keep to one topic. I have been driving quite a lot of professors into early gray hairs because I'm not researching what I'm supposed to be working on. This is actually what my director would like me to work on, perhaps, but um, it 's coming from quite a lot of different directions. so this is going to be a talk which is fundamental about ethics, but of course i 'm also getting into the history of ideas and the questions about evolution, questions about uh, long range planning and of course space flight and other cool things so what is the, by the way i should also mention asher Soriel has contributed quite a lot this is talk is to a big chunk based on a paper we're writing right now uh, although i'm adding other weird quirks because i'm also writing about some more even more extravagant stuff but to get started we have this interesting question are we alone in the universe and this is a question that's surprisingly modern uh, many people would say today that's kind of an obvious, important question, but to a lot of people across history, the answer was self-evident. Self-evident. Of course, we're not alone. Uh, of course, every place where there can be people, there are going to be people and animals and plants. Otherwise, it would be weird. Um, Anaxagoras, one of the pre-Socratic Greek philosophers, famously suggested that actually there are little seeds uh, of life floating around everywhere in the universe, and sometimes they fall down on earth, so if there isn't life in some place, those life seeds will blossom. This is slightly related to the idea that actually life spontaneously just generates when the conditions are right, which was a fairly popular idea up until Louis Pasteur actually demonstrated that no, life only comes from other life, But of course Anaxagoras and his followers would say, yeah, but don't worry, there's life everywhere, anywhere. So uh, why worry? Indeed, when uh, you get over to the early modern era and the Enlightenment, you find Immanuel Kant uh, doing a surprisingly modern argument in his uh, writings where he talks about the importance of making bets about your beliefs. Uh, He pointed out that uh, many debates can be improved if you bet a few guineas on it, because suddenly, when there's money at stake, many people become much more epistemically careful. Fifty pages later in the same book he says, I'm willing to bet anything I own, that of course there are intelligent beings in other heavenly bodies. That is interesting. Uh, I wonder whether he was seriously making that bet, or just exclaiming it, uh, uh, kind of undercutting a little bit what he was saying fifty pages earlier. But this view was very, very common up until it suddenly ran into the astronomy and the space programs of the 20th century. At the start of the century, the idea of having Martians uh, was not too crazy. Uh, After the uh, Viking probes landed in the 70s, yeah, there was nothing there. Or at least not anything that we could obviously notice. And indeed we understood the conditions of other planets in the solar system to make the chances of having Martians or Venusians or Jupiterians look exceedingly slim. Suddenly the universe looked much emptier and that, as uh, Thomas Moynihan in his excellent book on the history of existential risk uh, pointed out, led to this re-evaluation of our place in the universe to that, oh, we might be the only ones, we might be the only intelligent beings. Indeed, this might be the only planet with life on it, which is a frightening prospect, because that means we're kind of in charge of this small flickering green flame of complexity in an otherwise dead and empty universe. Oh, we might actually have to do something about this. Uh, And that, of course, leads both to thinking about existential risk which is perhaps one of the most important impacts of this, but also the question, hmm, maybe we should start spreading that little green flame across the universe. This idea is actually a little bit uh, older than this uh, realization that the cosmos is totally empty. So, Nikolai Fyodorov um, and the other Russian cosmists already had this idea that we ought to spread across the universe. God literally commands us to do it. So original Russian cosmos was very much rooted in uh, his view, a slightly heterodox view of uh, Christianity. And his uh, student, uh, Nikolai Tsiolkovsky, the father of spaceflight, then popularized many of these views, maybe with a somewhat reduced religious bent uh, and more practical bent, in thinking about how do you make rockets, how do you make space habitat. We are going to need spacesuits. But in his writings, Besides famous quotes like Earth is the cradle of humanity but one can't remain in the cradle forever, there is this idea that yes, we have a duty to go out into the universe and spread Earth life. Uh, there are some interesting creepy passages where he's discussing where, what to do about other alien life and whether which kind of life has the, the best rights, etc. But the general idea is, of course, we ought to be going out there. Um, and indeed, when you then combine that, with this view that actually the universe looks pretty dead. And if you think that life has some form of value in itself, I'm going to return to that point. Then of course you can get to very interesting uh, philosophical points. So Marshall Savage in his uh, book, The Millennial Project, which literally has got a green galaxy on the cover, says, "'If we deny our awesome challenge, "'turn our backs on the living universe, "'and forsake our cosmic destiny, "'we will commit a crime of unutterable magnitude. "'Mankind alone has the power to carry out "'this fundamental change in the universe. "'Our failure would lead to consequences unthinkable. "'This is perhaps the first and only chance "'the universe will ever have to awaken "'from its long night and live.' We are the caretakers of this delicate spark of life. To let it flicker and die through ignorance, neglect, or lack of imagination is a horror too great to contemplate. Yeah, that's a really magnificent quote. Of course, uh, somebody in the ethics part of philosophy department immediately will start nitpicking on it. But there is a wonderful force there, and many people felt that. We have a good reason to go out there and spread life. And you could of course say, okay, the important part is humanity, we are going to spread there but we need food, we want to have gardens, we would like to see an ecosystem. So even if you don't care about nature, if we are going there, we're going to spread life. Or you could say, life itself is valuable, even if no, no human ever sets a foot on a planet, it's better if that planet is green. So. A lot of the more traditional parts of the discussion about space have been re- dealing with traditional space settlement and things like terraforming and one can think about the conversion of an unliving planet into a planet that can host earth life in various ways so the kind of cliche target, probably because it 's the only somewhat realistic target in a solar system is Mars, and people have spent a fair bit of effort thinking about how to do it and uh, it The interesting part here to me seems to be that you can do it by gentle nudges. Carl Sagan and others said we should be putting dark dust on the polar caps to make the carbon dioxide evaporate, getting a thicker atmosphere that would allow more water to exist there. We put up a bit of solar reflectors, and then hopefully you can reach a tipping point where you jump over to a warmer, wetter climate where your hydrological cycles start and you get greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. The problem is, There is probably not enough volatiles on Mars to do this. So maybe you need to import them. Maybe you actually need to pick apart the Saturnus moon Enceladus, as Freeman Dyson suggested, transport the parts of the moon using solar cells and bombard Mars with that to really add an ocean. Um, And once you start thinking big, okay, big arrays of reflectors, maybe we should use uh, factories to make super greenhouse gases. Actually, why don't we use nanomachines to essentially pick apart the planet and put it back together into an Earth? Uh, You have a spectrum going from a very gentle nudge over to literally remodeling a planet. And most people tend to lean towards the idea that, oh, a gentle nudge, really. Uh, Partially because it seems to be the conservative thing to do. After all, this is very advanced technology, we're talking about at the other end of the spectrum, we don't know how close we are, and it seems to be the reasonable thing. And there is probably also this idea that, yeah, maybe this is respecting the planet better. Um, the, it's a very interesting the, the discussion that shows up here, because this is where you know, space ethics first rears its head. Wait a minute, you're talking about transforming a planet. What about Earth? What about the rights of Mars? What kind of rights does a planet have? So we get an interest in discourse where people have been arguing about the ethics of doing terraforming. A fair number of ethicists have had this intuition, but it sounds rather bad. Uh, picking apart a planet and turning it into Earth, that's already weird. But uh, even putting life on Mars, do we have a right to do that? Now, I would argue that many of these papers don't have a very great ethics uh, uh, argument, but there is something interesting going on. Uh, just as some people say that life itself has an intrinsic value, you could argue perhaps that even unliving environments have an intrinsic value. Uh, so there is some discussion about the shaped complexity of Mars. There are the beautiful canyons and sand dunes. and if we had some cactuses growing there, would that make things better or would that just impair the, the value that exists in these natural sand dunes? The problem with that argument is, of course, that there is another form of shaped complexity consisting of Elon Musk showing up and uh, building Muskville uh, using a complicated uh, economic infrastructure developed from evolution on planet Earth. That's also shaped complexity, just as much as a sand dune. So there is an interesting problem of how to make this fly ethically and philosophically. There is also an interesting question what kind of world we're talking about. So on one hand, Stanislaw Lem in Solaris, he has uh, a character explained that, well, we humans say that we want to go out into uh, space uh, and explore it, but actually what we want is to turn it to home. We wanted to turn it exactly like at home. And Lem, as an author, is very critical of this. It's very clear that he doesn't approve of this view, but he thinks that this is what humans are going to do. We're going to pave over everything out there and turn it into something uh, similar. Then you have the Star Trek view, Uh, to boldly go where no man has gone before, and and, uh, and, uh, seek out strange new life and strange civilizations. Uh, And that that part is allowing yourself to be changed, learning something from the alien, maybe changing it in uh, return, but allowing yourself to be changed. And then you have Heinlein's view that basically is, yeah, we're gonna do stuff. Some of it is going to be stupid, some of it is going to be horribly immoral, When are we going to find out what was stupid and immoral? Well, at the end of time, basically. It's still going to happen, and we're not going to be stopped just by some Aunt Nelly, as he put it, sitting at home wringing their hands about ethics and politics. Now, this debate is kind of interesting, but it's also relatively far away from something we can do today, so we have plenty of time to be Aunt Nellies about it. But we have another form of uh, intervention uh, that is much more likely to happen much sooner. (coughs) And that's directed panspermia. So Anaxagoras panspermia hypothesis, that there are these seeds, the sperms uh, everywhere, pan, uh, that was an explanation of life on Earth. And for a long time, people were kind of throwing it around uh, as a loose idea. Uh, Svante Arrhenius, the Swedish uh, chemist and scientist, uh, he actually proposed as a proper scientific theory and in a book around 1900, uh, where he was proposing that actually bacterial spores can probably be lofted away by the solar wind. We should actually expect this to happen. And it's been a somewhat controversial view in, in the astrobiology community whether this is actually happening or not. Uh, there is also a philosophical question whether this is a good explanation of life on Earth. But directed sperm is the idea that if it's not happening naturally, we can do it anyway. We could loft bacterial spores on the solar wind. Uh, We could put uh, them on a payload and try to launch them towards nearby solar systems. Uh, This idea first shows up in the writings of Olaf Stapledon, uh, but I think uh, he actually got it from his friend, uh, the biologist Haldane, who wrote about it a bit later himself and then it has been uh, popularized by other people. And in part of the space movement, who still got this very strong cosmist idea that we have this kind of duty to spread life, this is, of course, a big uh, uh, deal. So the idea is that if the universe is not already green, we can green it, even if we are unlikely to ourselves be able to go to these uh, stars. Uh, now, how would you go about doing it? The original paper by Motner and, um, forgot his other name, Um, they they were talking about solar sails. So instead of just uh, throwing spores into space and hoping for the best, you actually need to protect them. There is quite a bit of radiation in space. That's not very good, even if you are a bacterial spore. We know that under some protection, bacterial spores can survive in space for years. And if you actually add a lot more protection, it looks likely that you can extend that much, much more. So the idea would be put up a solar sail, have a small payload, have it drift over to another solar system. This might also be improved if you can shine a laser on that sail, like the project Breakthrough Starshot, uh, the the Breakthrough Starshot project, um, that is aiming at actually sending these small probes to nearby stars over the next few decades and actually arriving within a few decades. That would definitely be enough if you put bacterial spores and they're not fried by high temperatures on the sail and to be able to get there. Another idea I've seen is that you inoculate uh, interstellar comets. So they move around between solar systems. occasionally they hit planets or break apart, and this way you could have bacteria spores protected by being inside a comet drifting around the universe. Uh, There are interesting questions like radiation tolerance, but you can breed bacteria to be very radiation tolerant. Uh, There are questions like how you encapsulate it well, I have a feeling that maybe a few millimeters of clay might be good, so you might want to send out a little payload, but when you get into the life zone of a star, thermal expansion opens it up and little clay pellets fall out. That would then hopefully survive the re entry into the atmosphere, and if there is water, they dissolve and the, there go the bacteria. Yay! Now, the interesting insight here is that the individual probability of success for any given spore is very low, but you can send out a lot. The idea is to send it out and have it very cheap, because it's small. It's not like you need to send a lot of uh, brave astronauts. Uh, It could be rather effective, because you can multiply the likelihood by having many attempts. And of course, it's also potentially irreversible. Once those bacteria spores are going there, it's going to be hard to stop them. Uh, And this, of course, leads to the interesting value question. So there are different views here. So on one side, we have a panbiotic ethics. That is more life, more ethical value. Life has a value on its own, and it's additive in some sense. So we should be doing directed panspermia because that maximizes the abundance of life in the universe. And uh, that is kind of a useful approach, especially if you think in an additive way. In that case, you might also get an astronomical waste argument. Uh, So we can reach uh, about, if we, can at most travel at uh, a third of light speed, then we can reach about uh, 4.95 billion light years away. Uh, That's uh, about, um, that means that we're literally getting billions of galaxies, each of them with maybe 300 billion uh, Planets. And every year we wait, some of the galaxies become unreachable because of the expansion of the universe. So that means that we might lose about 300, uh, according to this calculation, at least 300 million potential habitable planets. 300 million Earths. They would fill the sky if we were in the solar system, it would be a rather crowded sky. Uh, it's an enormous amount of biomass, an enormous amount of biomass we're getting lost every year we're waiting. So, if you're taking this stance, of course, you feel like you need to rush to the launch pad and launch stuff immediately. Now, how you justify that is, of course, interesting. So, Motner and the others, they argue that the living systems tend towards survival and self-propagation. That's their nature. That's what they're kind of for. So, hence, the survival and propagation is the purpose of life. And as humans, we, as living beings, we have this purpose too. We are a part of having this duty to spread life. At this point, the philosophers in the room will go, wait a minute, Hume said something about is and ought being separate. Uh, uh, basically, this is very enthusiastic space scientists doing ethics slightly badly. Trying to get that purpose straight from the nature of life doesn't necessarily follow. But I think you could probably salvage a version of that argument, it doesn't sound too weird. Um, but you can justify it in other ways too. Another one is biocentrism, claiming that actually, life has value. And It's also not just individual organisms, but ecosystems. Uh, And that means that you need to work on conservation ecology. Biocentrism is much more popular, of course, in environmental ethics, because it usually tells us humans, stop destroying the biosphere. It has value, regardless of what value it has to you. But if you take that seriously, it seems still that maybe we should be adding more biospheres. Normal (coughs) biocentrists will say, not really. It's more important to conserve existing value than trying to create extra value. Uh, there is an interesting uh, di- uh, disparity here. Uh, and in fact, a lot of uh, conservation ethics is actually quite conservative. However, we do have a problem with existential risk. Uh, if we go extinct, it's probably not going to be a little mild thing that we just gently go into the night, but probably humanity uh, turns into an expanding ball of paper clips that wipes out the biosphere too. If humanity flubs it, it might be very bad for the biosphere. And in the long run, of course, the biosphere is doomed anyway when the sun starts becoming a red giant. And if you take a biocentrist view, you might still say, we need to save the biosphere from that. So in that perspective, uh, you might still want to do panspermia simply to keep the long history of Earth life going onwards. It, that still has value, even if you don't think it's kind of important But there's a lot of different planets uh, that have it. Now, this sounds like we have a lot of nice arguments in favor of rushing to the launch pad and sending out those spores, but there are others, including my co-author, who are rather concerned that this is a really bad idea. And they are coming, of course, from a welfareist perspective, that all and only well-being has ethical value. Obviously, there's a lot of other ethical views, but it's kind of nice to put welfarism versus the panbiotic people, the kind of ends of the spectrum, and make the debate a bit clearer. So here this idea is that, well, sentience is a precondition for well-being, and uh, if we do panspermia, we are going to end up with sentient beings across the universe, and a lot of them are going to have really bad lives. Now, why should we expect uh, sentient beings, uh, on average, to have a lot of bad lives? Well, evolution doesn't care about whether you're happy or not. Happiness or suffering is just a tool from evolution's perspective. It blunders around and yet figures out ways of making organisms survive and thrive. Now, the problem with that is, of course, that pain is a very good motivator. And from evolution's perspective, the only thing that matters is that you produce a lot of offspring. And in that case, of course, uh, if you have a horrible life, but your genes get transmitted, that's great from an evolutionary perspective, and you get more organisms like that, compared to the happy ones that have a fewer, or, uh, fewer offspring. Now, you can use different strategies here. In biology, we speak about R and K strategies. K strategies is what we humans and many other uh, bigger animals do. We have few offsprings that we care quite a lot for, and the probability of them surviving to adulthood is decent. The R strategy is more fish spawning, have a million eggs and a million larvae and uh, all all but one or two of them uh, do get eaten or parasitized or something else. The end result of that is of course a tremendous amount of death Uh, and uh, quite a lot of organisms that are using these strategies, individuals are disposable, which usually means they do get disposed and predated on and parasitized. Which means that, given that evolution also produced these motivational systems um, uh, of pleasure and pain, means that there is a lot of pain. So, in this case, we might end up with a situation, by adding biospheres, we get a lot more pain. Now, you could still be an optimist like me. Well, maybe pain and pleasure, we can put them on the same scale, and there is actually, on average, uh, a positive scale. At this point, the more gloomy philosopher in the room would say, how do you know you're going to be on the plus side here? Indeed, I can uh, show this pile of philosophy books where people arguing that actually life is pain and actually it's a net negative. Benatar and the other antinatalists, they would argue that actually if we just uh, got out of our illusions we should realize that we shouldn't want to live on and we should uh, stop uh, being alive. Schopenhauer famously suggested that once we understand that and give up our will to live and just lie down to die, it's not just we who are going to benefit. But since reality itself is held up by our will, once that disappears, the suffering of animals will go away too. That's what you get when you get antinatalism and uh, idealism combined. You don't necessarily have to go that far, of course. There is an interesting issue about moral priorities. We generally tend to say that suffering has a priority, and that means that um, even if not all of the alien biosphere is suffering, it's enough that there is bad suffering in some parts of it that it might make it a net bad to create that biosphere. Now, there are many other fears of suffering, and I don't have the time to get into that very well. Uh, I'm very fond of Thomas Metzinger's model of suffering, which requires a fairly advanced brain to work. I'm hoping that's true, because otherwise we would have a real problem on how to help the poor ants on this planet. But even if you buy the more elaborate model, which requires not just uh, sentience, but uh, the ability to think about your relationship, to and other entities, etc., etc., probably a fair number of mammals are capable of suffering. And if you have a suffering priority ethics, this is still a big problem. So from this perspective, we should definitely not be doing panspermia, because we might increase the total amount of suffering in the universe tremendously. Okay, so what should we do? One of the interesting things here is that there have already been a few illicit payloads going to space, some of them very cute, uh, like this little monument which is currently exhibited on the moon. It's not very far away, uh, you can go there on a weekend if you have the right equipment. So this was, oops, uh, this was uh, left uh, illicitly by some NASA astronauts, uh, um, uh, by the astronaut David R. Scott and James B. Irvin during Apollo 15. There is also a little art exhibit including a dick pic uh, due to Andy Warhol that was smuggled up there and famously there was a recent uh, moon probe that crashed but did not just have a Wikipedia inscribed on uh, sapphire disk but also some tardigrades in uh, epoxy and they were added without approval. There have also been unapproved satellite launches so the possibility of somebody actually launching stuff into space uh, without approval is non zero. Uh, and this is an interesting problem because it seems like we have a pretty uh, big uh, disagreement. There is an opportunity cost of waiting if you're a pan, uh, pan Bio uh, follower. Uh, you're losing galaxies uh, every year. But on the other hand, we also have a very strong reason to say that mm, if suffering matters, we might actually have a very strong reason to hold off. We also have normative disagreement. Um, So it's pretty clear that we need to work a bit harder. It's probably not much of a cost right now to slow things down and try to avoid doing this, uh, not do anything irreversible, especially because you can think of it as a unilateralist curse situation. This is a situation where it's enough that one member of a group does something for the consequences to ensue. It might be spoiling a movie, or introducing a new species in an environment. It's enough uh, that one person does this for the consequences to happen for everybody. And even if everybody is well-meaning and altruistic and trying to do the right thing, and then now individually evaluating whether it's a good or a bad thing to do, somebody is likely to be that guy just because of a misstep in their calculation or estimation. The larger the group is, the more likely it is that somebody's going to do it for some reason. Now, this is a bit problematic because even if it's actually a fairly obviously bad idea, once you have a sufficiently big group, you're going to have real trouble keeping yourself from doing it. Uh, So one heuristic is when you find yourself in a situation like that, you should generally try to be more conservative than you think is rational, given what you normally would believe if you were alone. If you find yourself in a unilateralist curse situation, you should play things safer. You don't want to be the spoiler. Now, if panspermia was very unlikely to work. Then this goes away, actually. Somebody is the guy and launches a space probe, but the probability of it having an effect is very small. If the probability gets higher, then we get a sharper situation and need to be much more cautious. And we don't even know when that point happens. And that is a bit of a, a scare. So. The interesting issue here is that uncertainty might actually force us to be more conservative. Now, as we described in that unilateralist paper, the best solution is to create institutions. Trying to, on your own, act in a rational way here is hard. You can do it, but you need to run basic calculations in your head, and that's hard for most heads. But sharing information, working together, creating a rule for what is allowed and not allowed, that is kind of doable, and we're actually pretty good uh, at doing it. We can actually develop consensus uh, of various kinds. One could also think about another interesting thing, and that is, even if we don't want to do it right now, we might still want to do something uh, in the case we really flub it up. So instead of a dead man switch, we might want to have a life hand switch. In the case of the earth going totally uh, to hell in a handbasket, press the red button and launch the spores. And I hope that the next uh, one might work. That is something one can set up, add the advocate safeguards to, etc. and might actually be a very good idea um, uh, to do. And might also keep the panspermia enthusiasts busy actually designing that system without trying to launch it illicitly. I'm running out of time, uh, so I don't have the time to talk too much about the even grander things about spreading on even grander scales of the balance between uh, the X-risk and the suffering risks. I'm writing another paper with Bruce Tsui where we're having this fun conclusion that according to at least one theory, we should settle just exactly six planets across the, uh, the reachable universe. But. Uh, there are many more things, like maybe life is the wrong thing to sell, maybe we ought to be selling machines, maybe we ought to solve suffering because delaying panspermia right now is kind of cheap and easy to do. There are few people who seriously try to do it midterm developing a good consensus on how to handle a cosmic footprint is going to be important that 's going to take time, and long term, yeah, we probably should fix suffering. I think uh, that sounds like a pretty good long term goal but That is in the future. Now I'm done. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much, Anders, for your lovely talk. Um, We can take a seat and answer some questions. Uh, So, on card for this event, you should see a live discussion option. So, please type in your questions in there. I'll also take, I'll try and prioritize the questions with the most upvotes. So, if you see a good question on there, upvote it. I see we already have a question, so we can just begin. Let's see. Okay, so we have a question from Peter here. Uh, is, it's kind of a three part question. Is there some ethical approach that is more useful than others for morally evaluating greening the universe? Uh, you've tended to speak about rights and duties. To what extent is that an intentional and considered choice? And could you comment on the approach? the applicability of utilitarianism or virtue ethics in such classes? Mm.
1: Wow, that's that's a wonderful three-part question. It's uh, enough to make a pretty good lecture. Uh, Speaking about rights and duties for uh, because of intention, I'm not good at intention. I'm just doing stuff randomly. I'm very much a stochastic parrot. Um, But of course from an ethics standpoint Different ethical systems lend themselves to different kinds of questions. I love virtue ethics for thinking about my personal life. It's very good for thinking about, oh, I should try to be a more courageous person. I should try to handle those impulses that make me procrastinate better. But that doesn't scale very well to society. I am writing a paper about civilization and virtues, and I do think they, in some sense, can exist. But it's much harder to run virtue ethics in a collective fashion. We might say, we want to have a a virtuous space program, but that's very hard to fly. Saying, we want a utilitarian space program, we can totally do that. We might quibble a lot about the details, but it's much easier to implement. Similarly, a Kantian deontological perspective also lends itself to collective action much more. So I think, sadly, virtue ethics is going to be having to take a back seat which is always complaining about and uh, many virtue ethicists are trying to find better ways of dealing with it. Generally I think recognizing normative uncertainty is important here. We actually don't have a complete theory about what good is. We don't have a complete uh, theory about what's moral. It's not just that we disagree with each other. Even if you are an honest person and are trying to understand everybody's position, it's kind of hard to tell whether what we ought to be doing here. There are good arguments everywhere some of them lead to weird conclusions. We are confused. At that point, of course, we should recognize that we should try to act in a way that is robust in regards to that confusion. So I think there are techniques from normative uncertainty in thinking that can help us here. We might want to actually try to get different views together, try to have a kind of moral parliament and see, okay, what is it that every view more or less agrees on? That is something we can actually go with. What is it that we have firm disagreement on? Can we find out information that makes us resolve that disagreement one way or another? Mm -hmm. So that's probably my recipe for these things. But I don't think I covered all of that question. But uh, let's take the next one.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So we have a question here. Uh, Would the idea slash discovery that we were a product of a previous civilization using panspermia change your ideas about our own obligation to doing the same?
1: That is an interesting one. Uh, if we discovered that we were the result of a natural panspermia, that okay, there is various little seeds floating around and uh, life didn't originate on Earth, but is part of this big tapestry of cosmological evolution, I think most people would say, whoa, that's cool, we're going to do some nature documentaries uh, with David Attenborough and, uh, narrating about this, but it's not too unsettling on the other hand if you found that oh there are some precursors we actually see the earth although not for us they see the earth with some prokaryotes uh, literally billions of years ago and uh, either very very gone or maybe now there's something very weird post-alien that is a bit more unsettling i think most people wouldn't be too changed by it but i think intellectually what it means is we are part of a bigger community here and it's a community in the sense that now there are actually beings and the intentions involved, not just that evolution is uh, the, the blindly stumbling around and occasionally doing marvelous things, but now there are intentions around in the universe. We have a place, we have literally a kind of parent civilization, even if we'd never get to know them, and that might be interesting and important. It might also make us think, oh, maybe we now have a duty to continue this, And some people will say, wait a minute, we can totally rebel about those guys, they thought it was a good idea, I don't think so, I think we can totally do something different. It would change the debate quite a uh, a lot, and it would probably force us to recognize a much bigger reality outside uh, the earth. Most of the time, we tend to be kind of obsessed just by the big things we have on earth. It's kind of unfathomable how large the biosphere is and how old our history is. But in this case, we would be forced to think on a truly in a Stapledonian sense. His Last and First Men and Star Maker are some of the greatest science fiction novels of all time, just because we take this vast sweep of human and intelligent history across the universe. And I think it would be good for us to think like that.
0: Nice, and then we have uh, time for another question. Uh, What do you mean by phenomenological engineering?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, So, part of Metzinger's uh, description of uh, suffering is that one of the requirements is, of course, that you have a phenomenology. There is something like being you. Robots that don't have any internal experience can't suffer. There is an interesting question whether they can still be a moral patient that we still might have to care for. But, clearly, if pain is just a number, instead of something that is actually experienced as qualia, there might be an important difference. And indeed, Metzinger had been a bit worried that our work in AI might create phenomenological experience in machines that we don't recognize, and that we create tremendous moral harms by us blindly stumbling into a world of AI. And uh, he was also very upset when he noted that most AI ethicists totally ignored the question. They might disagree with him, but just ignoring the, uh, this question is kind of disturbing. But suppose it's true that you can get phenomenology through certain configurations of matter or software and energy. In that case, you can probably engineer it. Certainly you can engineer your phenomenology by taking some weird drugs. That's not much engineering, of course, it's more like a uh, standard kind of, uh, a little bit of uh, witchcraft. Uh, you, we know a few things, we can put stuff together. But we could imagine turning this into a science and an engineering, like, okay, for this purpose I want to get rid of pain. Indeed, we're doing that with normal painkillers, we're decently good at it, we ought to become much better because there's too much unnecessary suffering in the world. But we could imagine also trying to create organisms that don't have negative experiences. Some people would say, that's not possible, if you have good experiences there must be a contrast, etc. There is a big debate to be had about that. I disagree. I think actually suffering and pleasure are orthogonal angles in our phenomenolo- the phenomenological space. But then again, I'm not a philosopher of mind, uh, I might be utterly wrong about this. But it wouldn't surprise me that once we know enough, we might actually find ways of engineering phenomenology And that could allow us to create interesting things. I don't know whether we could engineer life that would naturally evolve on a remote planet without any human oversight into beings that don't suffer. That is, in my opinion, unlikely. I think evolution will rather strongly create suffering-like systems. But then again, I would imagine that I could send robots, and self-replicating robots with some code, and if they have a phenomenology and we did it right, we could prevent them from evolving. Because now we could put in rules for how they evolve and mutate that leave certain things invariant. And maybe we can do the same thing with life. But this is rather advanced stuff that I don't think we have a good handle on yet. We should get it, though.
0: Okay, perfect, thank you so much. I think that's all the questions we had time for today. So I'd just like to say, everyone give Andres a big round of applause.